0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the debut episode of Big Al's Rockin' Podcast. I want to introduce you to my very special guest, Jean Bouvier. You know him from working with great artists such as Paul Stanley, the Ramones, and Stephen Van Zandt. We're going to start this discussion talking about Jean's 2022 book, Bet My Soul on Rock and Roll, The Diary of a Black Punk Icon. How are you doing, Jean, and thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing good. Thank you, thank you for having me. I'm fine. I'm fine. So, uh, tell us a little bit. We'll we'll just get started. Uh, what made you decide to write this book? Well, it's something I've had in mind for a while, you know, and um,
1: you know, I just kind of didn't get around to it. I was always very busy, but I always um, you know, put notes down. You know, for years now, past fifteen years or so, when I started thinking about it, it was probably around two thousand five. I think I started thinking about it. So I kept just every time I'm a little. Anything, anecdote, or something that happened, anything I'd remember, I'd just write it down or dictate, it and I'd put it into a note thing. So by the time I got to a couple of years ago, I had quite a bit, and um, and then I just decided it was time. With COVID, for one thing, you know, we had some downtime, and so that kind of was good—a good time for me to um, you know, to just buckle down and get it done. Cause it's a lot of work; <laughs> it's not easy writing a book, you know. Uh, And so that was um, that was it. I just decided it was time and it's it's really more for the legacy. You know, I just felt like I've done quite a bit in my career and I'm getting up there. And I just want to make sure that, you know, as many people know what your contributions were, what you did, you know, and that's it. That's kind of why I put the book out as well. so That that outlives me. (laughs)
0: When writing the book, what was the hardest part for you putting it together?
1: We huh. think the hardest part, it, for some reason, it was um, because you have to reread it and then it went to an editor and then, you know, over at the at the uh, book publisher, then it came back and you had different people who had different comments and different opinions, you know, sometimes. And you'd have an editor who maybe would feel like a certain thing that might have been important to you was not important or shouldn't be there. You know, so that, I think that was one of the hardest uh, things sometimes of, of of some of the back and forth. Um, and and it's just when I say it's a lot of work, is you know everything gets dictated, and then from there it gets transcribed, and then it, then it's all written into a bunch of kind of gibberish. You know, <laughs> then you've got to go in there and then stop making sense out of the whole thing, which is and I did a lot of it myself. Um, I had lost. Kind of my ghostwriter guy who was going to write it with me um, because, you know, the COVID happened, his kids, you know, he had to, you know, homeschool them. So he was gone and I had the deal and ready to go. I was like, uh oh, so um, I found myself doing a lot of the work until I found John Ostrowski, um, who had worked on the H. Really? And I brought him in. And um and that was good because I had him to bounce things off of. I could send him, okay, this is what I've got. What do you think? And then he'd send back and do some editing or give advice on you know things that he agreed with, et cetera. And I was so that's kind of it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I listened to the audio book and the guy that read it did a really good job reading it. Do you happen to know who that guy was, or did they just hire someone? You know what's funny? Um, his name's James
1: Fuhie. And I went through a little thing with the book company because first I told them I didn't have time to do it myself. They had asked me to do it. And it was like, I was busy. I was like, there's no way I'm going to do this. But then I started thinking about it and said, well, you know, it's probably best that I do it. (laughs) Then it turns out that they had already looked at this guy. Uh, I wasn't sure he was right for it. Um, because I don't know if you know what's been going on at publishers and everything. They had this thing where they were, they could only submit black public, black narrators to me, which was the oddest thing I ever heard. <laughs> I say, well, what if this guy's from here or if I'm, I'm black, but I'm, you know, have this and have that. And I grew up in a different place. You can't just say, you know, Oh, Anybody who is black who writes a book has to have a black narrator. So I ended up in a fight with them about that, even though I know he was, you know, good. He could do different accents. He had done some, you know, he's definitely a reputable guy. But I, I kind of got in a little thing with them for a while there, just because of the principle of it. I didn't like the principle.
0: I understand that, you know, uh, you got to find somebody that fits your personality to read those books, I think. That's right. But in the end of the day, I'm
1: about to be honest with you, I haven't heard the whole game myself at this point, but I did hear some of it. But I'm glad to hear that you liked it because that was my main concern, is that the fans got it and you know and got the right idea from it. Or, you know, or, or people who read the book.
0: Was there anything when you were writing the book that maybe researching yourself that you had forgotten? Anything that surprised you while putting this book together? Yeah.
1: Because I would say, I can't remember in particular, maybe what that would be. Because there are so many little stories in there. I've been around a long time. (laughs) You know, that's what you realize. You think you're old. (laughs) You're not. (laughs) I've been around a long time. And you start going back all those years and you say, Lord, Jesus, I can't believe I was, you know. And and that happened that long ago. Whoa, you know. So you are surprised. and, And it gives you which I think is a positive thing is it gives you an opportunity to really relive your entire life step by step, which is what I did. You had to go back from the beginning and remember every detail. every. You asked what was hard, date. That's what was oh, hard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some of my favorite stories that you told were your times in Europe and I was in the air force and I was stationed in Germany from January of 89 ah. to January of 91. So a lot of those stories that you told about the European clubs, I could identify with. That was really cool. Oh, yeah. you
1: could, you understood them absolutely. That's,
0: that's...
1: <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. That sounds so open, but that um, yeah, it was a fun time. And there's so many, you know, like I said, it's a long time, so there's so many little stories. So you get surprised a lot of times, or it, it really refreshes your memory, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> or you say, I can't believe I did that. Or. no. <laughs>
0: is there anything in particular that you would like to talk about in the book i mean we're not going to tell all the stories in the book obviously well of course right um yeah because
1: you don't want to give too much away well you know i just think um i did my best to try to share pretty much my whole life you know and kind of the roller coaster ride that the music business is. You know, a lot of people have this illusion that it's just like, ah, have a hit run around limousines, you're having a great time. there's that, <laughs> you know, but there's also difficult times, you know. And um and to get to the point where, you know, at the very beginning, nobody believes in you or nobody believes what you want to do, you know. So you've got the world against you You know, at the beginning and it's just you standing there saying i can do this <laughs> you know that's that's tough at the beginning so you have to have pretty thick skin so i kind of go through all of this in the book and i go through you know what uh you know inspired me made me do what i did and a lot of things are just uh luck it's interesting how lucky things happened at times or being at the right place at the right time you know, brings a surprise, you know, like whatever, Cobra and Stallone coming out of the blue, you know, uh, Richard Branson coming out of the blue. Um, One thing that did surprise me is I never knew about a bidding war or bidding thing between Michael Jackson and Prince to get me into their camp. I didn't find that out until somebody that I knew who was a very good friend of Michael Jackson's actually wrote, uh, you know. Um, wrote it in my book, <laughs> and I was like, you know, he started writing. I asked him to write a piece and forward, and he did. And I looked it and I was like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, I knew I had offers, but I didn't realize that there was an active thing going that they were both in, you know, in it together.
0: To uh, you know, those were some pretty cool stories, and you know, I can understand some of the decisions that you made regarding Prince and regarding Michael Jackson, and. Personally, I think you made the right decision because you've done pretty well over the past X number of years as a solo musician, songwriter, producer, CEO. Thank you very much.
1: I'm satisfied. You know, you, you always go through life and you say to yourself, Oh, you know, God, if I wouldn't have done that, if I if I only would have let him produce that record or do this, why, why, you know, you'll say those oh, things yeah. to yourself. You know,
0: mistakes. Or oh, you think i Yeah, you can't spend your life second-guessing <laughs> yourself. You just make yourself really miserable. That's right. So, you know, every once in a
1: while it happens. But overall, I, I'm really satisfied because it's funny, after years, everything kind of accumulated, and then you kind of get to see, well, you know, you've got a good body of work, you know. It, it, so it shows that, yeah, you didn't waste your time for the past many years, you know. And, um, and then you're, you're satisfied. I'm satisfied. You know, I'm happy. Matter of fact, I'm I'm uh, thankful that I had some of the opportunities that I
0: had. Absolutely. So we'll we'll move on from the book here. You got your start in the music business, being the bass player for the Plasmatics, and during that time, you did your thing with them. You've met with Prince. You've met with Stevie Ray uh, Stevie Rayvon. <laughs> Van Zandt. Stevie Van Zant. I'm reading right off my screen, and I still got it wrong.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: <laughs> you know, it's and right. hanging out with David Lee Roth and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, what's it like? Prince offering you a solo record? David Lee Roth talking you into going solo? And Stevie Van Zant pulling you into his world?
1: It made you feel good because you know when I was in the Plasmatics, you know, you were you were well known, but you were known for a certain thing. So now the next thing was to try to prove what you believed yourself, is that you had talents beyond what people thought the plasmatics were. The, Richie Stott, and I, the guitar player from Plasmatics, spoke a couple of days ago, and we were discussing just that. Um, people always thought these things were so easy, but punk rock is one of the hardest musics to play. People don't realize it because it's, you know, when you're strumming at those speeds, it's not like metal where it's all well and organized you know it's kind of like there. it's a feeling thing and it's it's difficult but anyways you know people had their view of what punk and the plasmatics were you know and so you had to kind of prove it you know otherwise so stephen was um you know i was surprised that i got a call from prince and his people i was like prince i mean <laughs> and i found out that he was a big plasmatics fan i had no idea you know <laughs> to be honest Um, But, you know, he's different, he's, you know, strange in ways, he's a rebel, you know, the rebels kind of follow each other, even if there might be a different extreme of things that they do, you know. So that was interesting, And uh, you know, meeting up with Stephen, he was the one that kind of made me realize, he said, listen, if you come work with me for a while, you know, I'm taking a break from Bruce, you know, um, people will see that you're working with Springsteen musicians, with this, with that, and they'll look at you differently. He says, right now, you're not going to get a deal. So Forget it. You're wasting your time. And he was right. You know, so I did that and then kind of paid dues in different ways and then started writing with you know, kids and doing other things. And um, then you started to know that, oh, okay, you do have what it takes to do that. So keep going.
0: <laughs> Is there anyone that you have really, really wanted to work with that you haven't had the opportunity? You know, I don't think about it in that way that often, but there are um, there's
1: a few people, of course. I mean, I'd like to work with the Stones. Who wouldn't work with the Stones? You too. It was very interesting. <laughs> matter of fact, I blew an opportunity for that—not to work with Mono directly, but to work with his favorite band, which he had signed. And I chose not to do that. That might have been a mistake because it was in Ireland, in the middle of the winter, and I had another option to produce an artist in LA in the nice, warm, sunny. <laughs> i I, you know i'm from the caribbean i chose la (laughs) rather than you know ireland but um there's a few stones matter of fact the other day i was just thinking that um i was really lucky one day in my uh, when i was recording in new york mick jagger and mick jones from foreigner were recording upstairs and The studio owner said they wanted to come down and just say hello and see what's going on. So they came into my studio. They looked. I was like, wow, thank you. That's my first record, too. So I'm like, yeah. Next thing you know, Mick Jones decides, you know, yeah, I let him play a solo on one of the songs. played a great solo on one of my songs. But he's someone that I was just thinking about the other day when I was listening to the radio and I heard that song, I Want to Know What Love Is. is Just an amazing song. I said, I'd like to write with him. That's somebody I should reach out to and see if, like, we could still write something because Karn has written such fantastic things, you know. And um, but I've been fortunate, Kiss, the
0: Ramones, and all the people I've worked with. But there's always more. There's always more. What advice would you give to someone wanting to pursue a music career in today's climate? do oh. I'm, I'm joking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. It's probably the best time ever, for anybody to have the opportunity to have success in music. Now, with other before, you didn't have that, which I actually liked, you know, and I think a lot of us feel the same way. You had to earn your way up this ladder. Once, whatever it might be, playing locally, then maybe somebody sees you, then maybe you get a manager, then maybe you get a major, and then somebody takes you to one of five labels or whatever that there was, very few labels at the time, who were only going to sign X amount of of artists. So you really had to be the cream of the crop to be able to get to that stage, or you'd never get to that guy who's going to sign you. So it was really, you know, uh, it wasn't easy to become, by by any means. But you had to be persistent, and, you know, if you were good, you'd get there. For the most part, that's not true, that everybody would get there. Lucky and good. (laughs) You need both. Um, but now, almost anybody can put software in the computer. They have samples all over the place. They have it. You can basically take guitar parts from any guitar player you want, they play anybody, and just create. it, Even if you're not musically inclined, and um, so if somebody really wants to pursue it, I still think you should do what it takes to to rise to the top. But I would definitely pay attention to the social networking world. Because that is the world now. You know, um, you wouldn't mind here. Here's a little story. God, what is her name? What is her name? I saw a girl playing guitar on the internet on Instagram. And I really liked the way she played. She was just funny. She had this attitude. She played solo. She was making all jokey faces. I'm thinking, this would be a great girl to have my band to tour. I actually spoke to her a couple of times via email, just telling her that she's great and talented and I wish her luck and blah, blah, blah. She was young. I think she's like 18, something like that. Turns out that she posted a video every single day for one year. I looked last week, last time before, three months ago, I looked at something. I looked last week and it's talking, she just got a major record deal with Universal or with a major label. And she has a video up right now actually describing how she made it in the music business to that point just by doing Instagram videos. So she said that she posted one every single day, never missed a day, different outfit, different this, different song, playing. And she just kept doing, kept doing it. She got calls and messages from people like me, guy in L.A., and she liked that band, she liked that guy, and then finally one guy the record company. They saw. Her, they signed her.
0: That's fantastic.
1: So it's that's fantastic. Theater. It's a fantastic. actor. I was so like happy. I said, I knew that girl <laughs> had something. I knew she was a star. You know, and there's, there's something about her. But the, the key is that she was persistent. She. I mean, it takes a lot to get up every single day and post a video, even if it's one song. Getting dressed, playing, doing the whole thing, guitar playing the solo, you know, and knowing the solo is all those songs. Every one of those songs. That's a lot of songs. You know, it's a, it's crazy. Um, but anyway, the persistence and really keeping an eye on what's going on now, social networking and and working to build your, fan, your own fan base at the same time, because that's just the way people, you know, record companies or whatever, look at it. You don't need a record company these days. You can sell everything yourself. You know, it's just a matter of how persistent and how consistent you are. If you, every day, posted some of the TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, they all pay money, all of them, for your songs. If you went to the studio tomorrow and you did a mess, I just met with my publisher yesterday. Everyone, he says, he thinks it's the best world ever. Now, because he, he said, because you make money from all these little monies, but still it's, you know, it's little money that up to big money, you know? But if some, you know what I mean? If somebody gets up there and every day, just keeps doing it, bangs away at all these things, eventually people are going to see it. More, No matter what, more people are going to see it. It's going to keep doubling, tripling, quadrupling, and you're building your audience. And you you probably can put yourself in a situation where you have your fans that like what you do, or it gets bigger. But you just have to get into it, believe, make sure that you're as good as you can be, and be persistent and consistent.
0: That's my advice. Sounds like pretty solid advice to me. Thank you. In your musical journey, would you do anything differently?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of things that um, that maybe I should have done differently. Um, I'm thinking about it the other day. Uh, like, for example, I've been friends with uh, Nile Rodgers, the a great producer, for many years. And after my first solo record, I was a little lost. And at that time, would have been a perfect time to let him produce an album for me. I would have done that. I've always wanted to work with them. For some reason, I worked with on somebody else's record, but never on my own. And I think we might have made a great record. That's one thing. Uh, a couple of other things. Uh, uh, bon Jovi was in Sweden and wanted to do some writing. <laughs> this was before Slippery went wet, and I didn't, you know, couldn't really work it out to do it. And I think I would have done that differently. (laughs) That's for sure. That's in my book. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) you know, and there's been a couple like that, you know, but it it is what it is, I guess. You never know. As soon as you change a path, everything can change.
0: That's like going back in a time machine. You know, you, you change one thing, you've ruined the world. That's right. You know, those movies. I was thinking about a movie when I said that just now. I don't remember what
1: movie it was, something where they went back in time. And as soon as they changed one little thing, all of a sudden, their whole life would have been completely different. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
0: let's talk a little bit about your discography now. You've got Drums Across the Mohawk, Jackknifed, Voodoo X stuff. Rock Masterpieces one and two, which is kind of a compilation of all of the stuff that you have done. Crown of Thorns. With all of that stuff, have you ever considered putting together a live album? You know, yeah. I mean, I've thought about it.
1: I'm gonna be playing live more next year, if everything goes as planned. And yes, yeah, yeah, I would consider doing that because I should have done that already. I believe we've released a couple of I'm trying to think if we released any live stuff. I must have released something and I about my career I would imagine um, unless it's just things on YouTube or something but maybe I haven't released any official definitely no album but I'm just thinking about even one off songs or something like that or B-side I think so but it's something I need to do <laughs> no doubt about that
0: Yeah. we'll move on to the um, who wants to be lonely thing now and we're going to kind of incorporate Paul Stanley in here you've written with the Ramones you've got the Pet Cemetery. Animal Boy, Brain Drain. Oh, by the way, the song "Pet Cemetery" that you co-wrote was in the TV series Mister Mercedes. There's a trilogy that uh, Stephen King wrote, and it's been turned into a Peacock TV series. Moving along to the the kiss related stuff, you recently recorded "Who Wants to Be Lonely" for my friend John Jeffrey, who is in a kiss tribute band mm-hmm. and they do they have done a couple of uh compilation CDs that were kiss covers for charity and the one that you did is for the Maria Love convalescent fund the Maria Love convalescent fund is a bridge to independence providing interim financial assistance for the people of Erie County New York with convalescent care needs They also assist in providing medical needs and supplies, even providing transportation to those who need help in getting to and from doctor's appointments. You recorded the single, Who Wants to Be Lonely? You're also a co-writer on the Kiss Asylum album, and you played bass on that song. Right. And I know you also played Mm -hmm. bass on Uh, All Night, and from the Animal Eyes album, Thrills in the Night was a co-write, and you played bass on Under the Gun, Thrills in the Night, Mm -hmm. and Get All You Can Take. So first tell us about how you got involved with John Jeffries project to record that single.
1: Basically he he called me and it was a while ago, uh, probably about a year ago. He told me what he was doing. told me he was making, doing this kiss tribute. It was for charity and he was trying to get you know, some people who were involved, you know, part of kiss <laughs> it, you know, were involved with the band in some way to contribute to the record. And, um, you know, I'd always want to support that kind of thing. So I said, yeah, go ahead. Let's do it. Send me the thing. The, so they recorded stuff over there. They sent me the files. We never got together, actually. I have my own studio where I just recorded the vocals um, and just sent everything back to them. And, uh, and then that's it. We just did things over the phone back and forth. And uh, that's it. And then now it uh, looks like it's ready to rock. Right on. And he's just
0: finishing up the album.
1: I think so, it should be a good album. I wish him all the luck with
0: it. So uh speaking of Animalize and asylum, do you want to talk a little bit about working with Paul and how that came to be? Okay. Um, you know, p- the funny thing is that we didn't start just directly
1: working together, you know. Um we met in a in a club. We met in this it was like an old diner that was called Heartbreak. It was downtown New York City, where everybody now Rogers, Paul Stanley, you know, actors, rockers, and all from all walks of life. You could see Harry Moore in there, then you'd see Brooke Shield with her mom, then you'd see you know, all kinds of people in there. And I was in there one day, and um, Paul and I kind of even pumped. or he walked over and he said, hey, you're that guy from the plasmatic. <laughs> I said, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at him, and you know, of course, they were doing makeup, so I, I kind of t- I kissed. <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then from there, we, uh, you know, just I don't know, we just hit it off. And we just started hanging out. We were, like, dancing with dancing with girls and everything and having a great time. And then we just exchanged numbers. And from there, we just, like, would get together and hang out. Like, we'd say, oh, come on. I'm going to take you to this uh, cool ice cream place called Serendipity. And we'd go there. Then we'd say, ah, we we'll are doing tomorrow. Let's go see that movie, blah, blah, blah. And then we'd go do that. And, or we'd go see concerts. We just became really good friends first. I'd go to his house. We'd hang out. But it almost took a year before and I'd go to some kiss rehearsals, this and that stuff, but we because I, I came from at that point, 82, 83, I had just finished playing with Little Stevens. You know, so it was like two musicians kind of hanging out, if you know what I mean, you know? And and we were doing that. And you know, we just enjoyed each other's company and fun when we were out, you know. Uh, like wingmen at the time you know and uh, we did some winging you know in sweden and all different places actually and then one day we we're just sitting there eating chinese food like we'd often do in his apartment and then he he'd got a guitar and we started messing around all of a sudden thrills in the night came out of that and then from there you know that, that was the first song i went into the studio got involved and but it was never something where I was really asked to play, you know, be the bass player for those songs. It was kind of very casual. It's like, I, you know, Paul would be in the studio. He'd be, say, okay, we're going to go to dinner at this place, whatever, Columbus or whatever. So let's do one. I'll be in the studio from three to eight. Why don't you come see me here? And then from there, we'll go to dinner later. I'd come, they'd play the song. I'd go, oh, you want to play bass on that? Oh, okay. <laughs> and then I'd just play bass on it, you know? And it, it was that... Casual, actually. And of course, Thrill's in the Night We Wrote, so I had played on the demo. So to them, it was, you know, they wanted to have the same sound. You know, they liked the demo. And Gene was always really cool about it. He never I don't think he ever looked at it like a threat or anything else. He was just like, I was like a little kid. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? I don't think he looked at it in any bad way. Like, you know what I mean? uh, We had a good relationship that way. And so that's that's how it started. And then I just ended up doing that. And then they released the record. It was great to see the whole process and how they did everything. And then the second album, he asked me more seriously, "Let's write for the second record." You know, by that time we were closer friends. We really knew each other, and and that was it. And then it was the same concept. It wasn't until many years later that I saw some place that I played bass on this song. So in other words, it wasn't anything that was ever advertised and i didn't think anybody would ever know about it
0: yeah i i know they had ghost musicians from as early as the love gun session so finding out that there's uh someone else playing bass it's not gene it wasn't ever really that surprising yeah but you know i've I've seen gene even say in uh interviews that sometimes you'll hear a rhythm guitar part that Gene is playing and Bruce will be playing bass on or whatever, because they had the better feel for the songs, you know, when it comes to the recording. That's
1: right. And I I think that's one thing that they've always been really, um, you know, cool about and and kind of adamant about is what's the best feel, what's going to do the song the best, you know, justice. So that's how they feel about it. You know, Somebody, like you said, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's one of the guys in the band or whatever, whoever has the best feel, that's what they're going to go with.
0: All right. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. I do want to thank you for coming on the show. I want to thank John Jeffrey for uh, hooking me up. No problem. Thank you, John, for hooking us up. And I want to thank Suzanne for doing the emails back and forth. She's been very wonderful. She's, she's part of the family.
1: No problem. I'll let her know.
0: Thank you very much again. No problem, Miguel. I wish you all the luck with the show and everything. If you need anything from me, you let me know. Okay? I appreciate it. That book is called Bet My Soul on Rock and Roll, The Diary of a Black Punk Icon, and you can find it on Amazon or on John's website. I will have that linked in the show notes below, and I will see you guys later.